Hello and welcome to Renewing Hope Church in Oceanside, California, where our mission is to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself. We pray that this episode will both challenge and encourage you to love more. And now, here's today's episode. All right, so verse 25. The woman said to him, to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So Jesus is at this well with this woman from Samaria, and she knows that the Messiah is coming. And and the question is, is how did she know that? And the people of Samaria, they only read the five books of Moses. So they didn't have... uh, they didn't read the book of Daniel, so they couldn't base it off. Daniel's prophecy prophesied that the Messiah was coming in a certain time period. And they know that this time period's close. So wasn't that maybe she heard the rumors of the Magi showing up 30 years ago and that there was someone born. And, you know, I'm sure the rumors were spreading. And obviously in Judaism uh, and in Jerusalem, all the Jews were expecting the Messiah to come. So there's definitely a vibe um, And I think that the Holy Spirit was genuinely creating a hunger for the Messiah to show up. And you could almost feel it in the air. And it's really interesting because I think there's a lot of correlation to today in the the body of Christ. If if there's one thing that I see personally, just as an observer, taking my own self out of it, and I just look at like what all these people are saying in churches, and I pay attention to all this worship music, the one thing I feel like the Holy Spirit's creating a hunger for today is is revival. Um, there's so many songs and, and messages about this. You know, a lot of people believe that God is coming with this last great revival before he comes. It's really, really exciting. So then Jesus, in verse 26, he says to her, I who speak to you am he. And this is wild, and we covered this in our previous sermon, that the first person that Jesus told he was the Messiah was a woman in the Middle East who was living in sin and had racial hatred and all kinds of stuff from the Jews. And it just shows you that in God's world, up is down. Like the lowest in our society is the most important in God's eyes. He always goes for the the outcast, the lowest, and he, he chooses those people to share his glory. Because I think in our own pride, if you're like the, the head priest, if you're the, you know, the, the priest of the Jewish temple and you've got all this pride and then Jesus comes to you and you're like, well, of course he came to me. Of course he told me he's the Messiah first. I'm so awesome. But when you're this woman at the well and you don't even think that God cares about you and he comes to you, it, it just shows you why God reaches out to the to the destitute and to the outcast to show his glory because, because in that state, God gets all the glory. We don't take any of it uh, for ourselves. And it's interesting if, because in this thing, this, this woman has this desire for the Messiah. She believes he's coming, up, coming, and it's just a reminder that if God puts a desire in your heart for something, not you put a desire in your heart, but if God puts a, hot, uh, a desire in your heart for something, he will eventually show up. So in those things in your heart, if you've been dreaming with God and you feel like this is from the Lord, I just want to encourage you. um, If God put those desires in your heart, um, he did that on purpose and eventually uh, he will show up. So verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman because in the Middle East, men didn't speak to women uh, in public like this. But no one said, 
what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Because they realize he's really, if he knows what he's doing, right? So they don't want to question what he's doing, but it's awkward to them because they're like, oh, this doesn't normally happen in public. So why are you talking to this woman? Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So the fire of revival is spreading. So uh, in our previous message, Jesus tells this woman things that only God can know. And she's blown away like God knows me. And, and, and obviously this has to be at least a prophet. And when Jesus reveals that he's the Messiah, she's, she's like, oh, my gosh, who we've been waiting for is here. So she runs to her town, even though she's kind of an outcast. She's probably running up and down. He's here. He's here. And, you know, and then people are like, well, what's all the hubbub about? And they're leaving their work and coming out to see. And so there's this crowd coming from the town to see like what she's flipping out about. So verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. That's the whole reason that he was left alone with this woman is they'd been traveling. They're hungry. They went into the city to get food. So they show up with the food and they're like, it's time to eat. Jesus, you need to eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So a theme that I talked about that we're going to see throughout the entire book of John is Jesus is going to be talking about spiritual things. And us as humans, we're always thinking about the temporary physical things. So they're thinking about the practicality of food. And Jesus is talking about spiritual food. Jesus' joy and satisfaction, his spiritual food, was to do the will of the Father. No matter what that was. And so I just want to remind you that it was the will of the Father to keep Jesus hidden for 30 years while he worked a mundane and difficult job just taking care of his family. That was the will of the Father for a long time. Then, when it was the appointed time, it was the will of the Father to use Jesus to do miracles and signs and wonders so that everyone could believe his words. And he had this incredible time of spreading this, the salvation of God, the message of God, the word of God, so that everyone could know these truths. I mean, when we think about the Beatitudes and all these incredible things that Jesus taught, loving your neighbor, loving your enemy, like how to pray, all these things... We're so thankful for, for Jesus' ministry, and we've got four Gospels that record a lot of what he said that we obviously were teaching tonight. But at the end of his ministry, it was the will of the Father to have Jesus be tortured and killed for our sins, which is really gnarly. And so I just want to encourage you, whether you're in a time of mundane, boring, just routine, you're in a time of suffering, or you're in a time of blessing, like, it's your job to do the will of the Father, because he's chosen seasons for you, and they all have their perfect purpose. God rewards us on our obedience, not based on the results, so... Whether God tells you to go take a nap or he tells you to raise someone from the dead, the reward is the same. You did what he said, right? So in God's eyes, what's most important to him is obedience, not the bells and whistles that we're always looking for. Back to the, the text. So verse 35, 
Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So he's telling this, this town is emptying out. And this next picture is a, a revival that was happening in Pakistan. All these people coming to the Lord. And you can just see, like, once people start to realize that Jesus is God, that, that the Lord is, and he's moving, it, it just spreads. And we've had this at moments in our nation's history, in the first great awakening, uh, before the founding of our nation, the second great awakening in the 1800s. And we've had small little doses since then, like the Jesus people was in Southern California and, and spread, uh, but we've yet to have a nationwide re- revival like in the past. And so when Jesus is looking at this crowd, Right? All these people coming to hear what he has to say, he attributes it looking like wheat. So and in this next picture, he, he sees a field of wheat. You know? and so he's, he's making the correlation between spiritual food and earthly food. And Jesus always does this. He uses great earthly examples to explain to us what it's like, and, if, and we don't, it's hard for us because we don't grow our own food. We're just all spoiled. We just go to a store and there's like a loaf of bread wrapped up for us. But for thousands of years, everyone had to grow their own food. And so when you grow your own food, what do you do? Well, first you got to break up the ground and till the ground, and then you plant a seed, and then it takes water and it takes months. And over time, eventually that little seed will turn into a stalk and will come out weed, or eventually if it grows like a fruit tree, you know, these things take a lot of time. So Jesus is using the example of wheat. And then the harvest is when you actually take, you know, the food, the wheat, off out of the ground, and and you get rid of all the chaff, and, and you get it ready to make bread. So in all the steps of growing food, what is the one thing that farmers had no control of? rain. So you can do all the work. You can till the ground. You can plant the seed. You can do all your stuff. But the one thing that you need is grace from heaven. Like God has to rain down grace from heaven or nothing happens. So what started the revival in the Samaritan town of Sychar? Jesus showed up. Grace from heaven, right? So once God shows up, revival starts. And just like in nature, revival doesn't happen all the time. Um, just like harvests don't, don't happen all the time. It's like a flower doesn't bloom 365 days a year. There's, God has appointed these specific times in history for revivals to happen. And now every generation needs a revival. And if a generation doesn't have a revival, then society starts to get really gross and corrupt and if. What we're noticing, it's been a while since the Jesus People movement of the 60s and 70s. And so as a nation, our morality is just going down the tubes because we haven't had a revival that's woken us up to the truth of God. Uh, What's really exciting is I believe that the next revival that we're going to have, whether it's this year, five years, 10 years, 50 years, will be the revival before the Lord returns. And I believe it will be the greatest revival the earth has ever seen. And what will start the next great revival? Grace from heaven. The Holy Spirit will show up 
And that's what's gonna get this whole thing going. Now, we can never base anything off my opinion, so we're gonna to go to a couple scriptures just to give you some facts. This is Joel chapter two, uh, starting in verse 28. It's a prophecy, and he says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So it doesn't matter your class, even if you're poor, God's going to pour out a spirit on everybody. Male and female, everybody gets him. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Notice before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, after Jesus died, he 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 rose from the dead, and he hung out for 40 days, which is really interesting. So I would imagine he spoke with his family and his brothers and his disciples, and he kind of gave everyone like uh, a battle plan of, of what to do. And at the end of 40 days, he, he goes to the Mount of Olives, which is just outside. Uh, the, their temple has like a, a valley and goes up to the Mount of Olives. So he goes up there and he goes up to heaven. And it's my favorite line that the angels are hanging out and they're like, same way he went up, it's the same way he's coming back. So that same spot at the Mount of Olives is where Jesus is going to land when he comes a second time. But he tells his disciples, wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. So they go to this room, this upper room, and they wait. And 10 days later on the Jewish feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down and and these tongues of fire and they all start speaking in different languages and all this stuff's happening. And the whole town notices because they're there for this, this um, Jewish festival. And they're going, what's going on? And then you can read this in the book of Acts. Peter stands up and he goes, this is what's going on. And he quotes the verse I just read to you in Joel. He quotes that verse. But if, as we just read, that verse in its full context is before the great and awesome day of the Lord, which is Jesus' second coming. So it was a partial fulfillment. And what's really cool is that in that uh, part of Joel, right before you get to that verse, it talks about former and latter rain. We don't understand that because we don't live in Israel. But back then, they would, just like I said, they would plant all their their seeds and then they would get this former rain in around the fall in like September. It would come down and what it would do, it would break up the the dry ground because they just got through summer and everything's like super dry and the ground's hard. So it would get like some light, light rain in the fall that would break up the ground so the seeds could germinate and it could get the whole process going. And then it spent months and months growing. And then in the spring, they had what's called the latter rain where it was like a downpour. And this downpour brought about the harvest. So... My personal opinion is that what we saw in Acts chapter 2 when revival broke out was a former rain. It was a downpour, but it was limited to Jerusalem, and it wasn't as nearly as heavy as it's going to be when God shows up before he returns to the earth. And what's so awesome about God using us is, is that God's not just going to do it on his own. He, he wants to use all of us individually to be a part of his work. So another verse that, that, that backs this is Revelation is basically a, a very complicated book, right, about all this wild imagery before Jesus returns. It's all about the seven-year period before Jesus returns. 
And notice what it says. This is Revelation 14, 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like a son of man, who, which is a title for Jesus, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come and the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. So that's what's super exciting is this is Jesus, because if you read just a little after that, there's a harvesting of the earth of the wicked, but it's an angel that takes care of that. This is Jesus' personal hand. He's personally involved in this last great revival. So he's going to use his Holy Spirit, and we get to be the vessels, all of us, for this great work, if we're so lucky to be here when it happens. So back to the text. So verse 36, already, Jesus, Jesus is speaking. He's saying, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So what Jesus is talking about is, a, is, you know, just like on a farm, you might have one guy that plants the seeds and then a different guy who comes by and actually gets all the harvest. So in churches and in spiritual practice, there might be somebody that plants the seeds of God in, in your life, but somebody else who brings it to fruition. And, and if, for those of you walking with the Lord, think about all the different people that God may have brought into your life to get you to where you are today with him. So it might have started with this one conversation with somebody at work, or maybe it was this teacher, you know, all these different people. And, and you see how God has used all these different circumstances and people to bring you to him. And Jesus is just explaining that. He goes, you're reaping the benefits. We're having this revival happening, but God's been using other people to plant these seeds with them for a long time. And sometimes revivals take generations where you know, think about this. This church has stood here since 1951, and this chapel was built in the 60s, and all the people that have come here and prayed and come to church. And, and so, so much work has been done, and we get to, to just enjoy the benefits of being in a building that we didn't personally build. And it's the same thing when it comes to salvation. Um, and that actually takes a lot of pressure off you as far as like, I know for me, when I thought about like getting people saved, it was like my job. Like if I don't get them saved, it's like, and I had this, like this, almost this anxiety about like, I got to get my friends saved today. And what a, what, like what Jesus is just covering, what a relief it is to know that it might not necessarily be your job to be the harvester. It might just be your job to plant the seed and then God's going to bring someone else down the road. So it is not your job to save people. That is God's job. What it's, it's your job is to preach the gospel in truth and love, to care for them, to pray for them. That is your job. Let God do the saving. Um, and that just takes a lot of the stress off you. So you can just pray for people. You can love them. You can give them the truth in love, but it's not your job to save them. That's God's job. Thank God. Uh, we are incapable of saving anybody. So notice uh, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So, um, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. That's a long time. And many more believed because of his word. Then they said to the woman, 
It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So whatever Jesus was telling them, they're like, you got to be God. You got to be the Savior of the world because you talk like nobody else. And he probably did some more signs and wonders in front of them. God doesn't have grandchildren. So he doesn't have nieces or nephews. He only has children. And so... When God is moving with people, he has to move with everyone individually. You can't get saved. You can't go to heaven because you know somebody who knows God. Like these Samaritans, you have to know God personally. You have to be born again personally. You have to be forgiven. You need a relationship with God personally. Um, Knowing someone, you know, it's like trying to get into a, a concert or something with you. I know someone who knows the band. It's like, that doesn't work in heaven. You have to personally know Jesus. You have to know him. And just like these Samaritans, it says, we know for ourselves that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And then he leaves. So verse 43, after the two days, he departed for Galilee. And John puts this really interesting note in here. He says, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own town. So we're wrapping up chapter four, and then we're going to go into chapter five of John. And John skips months of stuff that the other gospels cover. And what he skips is that Jesus went back to his hometown and he taught in their synagogue and they tried to kill him. They literally took him to the edge of a cliff to like throw him off. And after that, he moved his headquarters from Nazareth which is up in the hills, to Capernaum, which is down by the Sea of Galilee. So it doesn't cover all that in detail. You can read the other Gospels to get all the information, but that's what John's alluding to in that little section. So verse 45, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, notice, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, which was the feast of Passover. For they, had, they too had gone to the feast. So in Israel, three times a year, if you were an able-bodied male, you had to go to Jerusalem and worship God at the temple. Jesus at the temple at Passover did all these signs and wonders. So as everyone went back to their hometown, they were all talking about it. We saw this guy healing the sick and doing all this stuff. And so the buzz is going. And so when it says when he gets back to Galilee, they're like, yes, come to our town because they had seen all the stuff that he had done. 46, so he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. So the first miracle in the book of John that we covered is Jesus turning the water to wine in Cana. And the Holy Spirit has put this in this section of John because we're talking about harvesting. And why he's going back to the same town is because Jesus planted all these seeds of faith when he did this miracle in Cana And now he's going back to reap. So that's why he's going back to the same town, because he's building this movement of his ministry. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus is still in Cana. 
But, and he's going to go to Capernaum eventually, but before he goes there, this guy who's got his kid who's sick is probably going to die. He's so scared that he runs to Cana to get Jesus to come heal him because he's heard about the miracles that Jesus is doing. And any of you that, uh, if when your kid is sick, it's like, for you who don't have kids yet, when you're going to have one soon. When your kid is sick, it's the scariest thing in the world. And when when, uh, I mean, a couple weeks ago, my son, who's very allergic to peanuts, ended up in the emergency room because he accidentally had like a peanut butter bar that was covered in chocolate, didn't know it was, uh, and he couldn't breathe. And it's those moments like where it's like, man, but luckily they, they gave him some medicine and he lived. But if your kid is like sick to the point of death, if they have like cancer or something and you know they're not going to last longer you're desperate it's, it's like the worst possible scenario and so this this dad is desperate and then he's sitting in Capernaum and he's like my son's about to die and he hears that Jesus is shown back up in Galilee so he leaves his town and he goes to Jesus it is really interesting that God allows pain and suffering and from our perspective we're like why does God allow sickness and why does he allow pain and and notice, though, in this dad's pain and his worry, where does he go? He goes to Jesus. Because a lot of times when everything's great, we're like, we don't need God. We're fine on our own. But when things are going bad, it's my mother-in-law, before she died of cancer, she didn't walk with Jesus and just she got pancreatic cancer and she got saved right before she died because it woke her up to the reality of like, death and heaven and hell and God and all that stuff. So as hard as it was for us to lose her, uh, and, and she was young. She's my age now. She's 47 when she died. And it was so hard for us to lose her, but I'm so thankful for that cancer because maybe she wouldn't have gotten saved if that hadn't happened. So this guy goes to Jesus, and notice 48, uh, verse 48. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, the you, it's hard for us. In English, you can't tell when you is one person, and you can't tell when you is multiple people. So in this verse, it's y'all. It's you, plural. So he's speaking to all these people, and he's saying, y'all won't believe in God unless you see miracles. And I don't think Jesus is condemning the crowd. It's not like... I think he's just stating a fact that we as humans, we get really used to all the miracles that happen every day. Like right now, as a human covered in flesh, I'm standing here on this rock that's perfectly going around the sun in space. And I'm speaking invisible sound waves to all of you guys, which is hitting your ears and you understand it. And I mean, that alone is a miracle, but we're just used to it. Right? So we have all these miracles that happen every day. Like my body is digesting stuff and doing stuff right now, and I have no control over that because it's God. But we're just used to it. So a lot of times we need God to do extraordinary things or extraordinary things to wake us up. And the two biggest things that wake people up to God are suffering and miracles. So in this story, we have both. Now, why doesn't God do miracles all the time? Well, just like harvest, there's seasons. So God has appointed times for miracles and times for not having miracles. Um, we don't understand everything, but Psalm 1830 says God's way is perfect because he's perfect. So we just have to trust in him. Um, 
But notice Joel 2.30, which is what we read, and this is before Jesus returns. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. So that's kind of a hint that I think that we're on the verge of seeing God do some really cool stuff before he returns. And I'm really optimistic and hopeful that we're going to see God do a lot of really awesome miracles to wake people up um, before he comes back. Verse 49, the official said to him, to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. So he wants Jesus to leave Cana and go all the way to Capernaum. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. So Jesus doesn't do what he wants. He just stays there and he says, go, your son will live. But look at it says the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Do you know a lot of times in your life, the only thing God's going to ask you guys to do is just to believe. That's it. Just believe. A lot of times he doesn't want you to do anything. Just believe. So in my phone, I keep notes on what, what God speaks to me over like the years and stuff. It's, and I highly recommend it. If you're going through a rough time, you're questioning God, you have questions about where am I supposed to go to this college or that college, just, just keep notes of like what you're thinking, what you're going through. Because what's great is three years down the road, you can go back and you can see all these questions that you had and how God answered your prayers and he moved you and thinks he spoke to you. Um, it's, it's really helpful to keep a, a, a log of all the things that God is speaking to you. So for 2023, I've only heard one thing from the Lord. So if you look at my list, I've got like 29, from 2019, I've got tons of notes every year, all these things that God speaks to me. I have one note for 2023 so far, and all it says is believe, because that's all I feel like God's telling me to do is for this year, he wants me to believe that he's going to do some really cool stuff. Verse 51, as he was going down, this is the, the, the guy going back to his, his kid, his servants met him, and so he didn't even get all the way home. Servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that that, that, that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household so miracles are not just for you, they're for your household, they're for your friends. When God does stuff, it's like, man, that is one of the greatest impacts that you guys can all have on society. Like apologetics is really good, and that's just a fancy term for like knowing all these arguments of why God exists, of like, well, the, you know, the density of the, of the universe and how far we are from the sun, and I can explain all these different things of why God is. But a lot of times when you're talking with atheists or people, that doesn't always work. But sometimes when you just tell like, man, I was so depressed and Jesus, man, he showed up in my life and, and he, he fixed my depression and I have all this joy now. Like those simple little testimonies with your friends and family have an incredible impact. And I just want to remind you all that your story matters. Your story matters. So verse 54, this was now... The second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So what's really interesting is the book of John highlights seven miracles of Jesus. But notice it didn't list him speaking the word of prophecy to this woman at the well. So certain things it, it doesn't list, even though they're miracles, like when Jesus walks on water, that's not one of them. So there's seven specific miracles that the, 
the Holy Spirit lists through the book of John, and I'll reveal them as we go through them. And it's really cool because it talks about the Holy Spirit as a sevenfold spirit, whatever that means. But we have a seven-day week. There are seven Jewish holy days. Seven is this like number of God. Um, so I just love the, the design of John's gospel. The Holy Spirit has highlighted these like seven miracles and signs. Uh, and it's just really exciting. So that's the glory of Jesus coming to the earth with hope, with healing, with signs. And what's the whole point of all this stuff is to get us to go to Jesus because only Jesus can save us from our sins. That's why there's a cross behind me. That's why it is the foundation of our religion because without our sins being forgiven, we cannot go to heaven. We cannot be right with God. And all this stuff that Jesus is doing is just to prove who he is. And... Um, yeah, glorious. It's so glorious what he's done, what he's doing, and what he's going to do. So let me pray for you guys, and we'll finish with some worship. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just thank you for every person in this room. I thank you that, that their story matters, God, that you created them. I thank you for, for their lives. I thank you that they live and breathe, that you think about them more than there are sands of the sea, God. You... You smile over them. You, you love them so much, and you have the best things planned for them. Even if they're going through hard times now, God, in the long run, if they trust you, it will all work out for good. So I just thank you for Jesus, Father. I thank you for sending him to the earth to give us hope so that we would know even when our kids are sick or things are going bad or we're caught in sin, just like the woman at the well, that you can fix everything. You can wash our sins away. You can give us hope, and you can make us new, God. You're an incredible God. We're lucky to be made by you, to be created in your image. And thank you for the opportunity to become sons and daughters of you, holy God. So thank you for tonight, and bless the rest of it. In Jesus' name. Thank you for tuning in to Renewing Hope Church. May God's love for you renew your hope today, and may His face shine upon you and give you peace. If you need prayer or would like to reach out to us, you can do so at our website, renewinghope.church. Until next time.